everybody in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we get a little spooky and we'll learn something about cryptids or the supernatural. That's what we have. (laughs) We have some really exciting things in the works. Uh, There's a new merch launch that'll be dropping the same time as season two, which is January 6th, 2022. There are new designs, including one of our first line that I have deemed thickdids. And once you see it, you'll understand why. With that launch, it'll be the celebration of our first year anniversary, and there'll be some prizes as well as personalized thank you from Brian and I for anybody who purchases anything, including even some signed merch. Just a reminder that podcast season one will end on December 19th, 2021 with episode 45. And also, I would like to say uh, hello to our newest Patreon subscriber. Just signed on last night. Oh, nice. Her name is Jessica. So thanks had, for listening, Jessica. We had another one over to break too, right? Oh, no. I, I, the one came in last night and I was like, ooh, let me go send her the link to the Discord so you can be special with us on Discord. <laughs> but okay. yeah, so that was pretty exciting. Yes, yes. It's always exciting to have a new Patreon subscriber. So this week in True Grime... I saw this ridiculous story and like this just tells you how like stupid kids are like and when I say kids I mean anybody under 18 like and honestly really like under 25 but you're a grown up if you're 18 but so let me read you this teens charged in teacher's death asked to be released to their parents while pleading not guilty. So teenagers killed their teacher. Yeah, two 16-year-olds, Willard Noble, Chayden Miller, and Jeremy Everett Goodall. And they have asked the court to let them go home and be with their family, like, for the holidays. I was about to say, for the holidays? For Christmas? And yes! Stuff? Oh, no, no, sorry. You're that's not... literally here for murder! <laughs> yeah, that's not how um, crime works, children. Sorry. They are accused of killing their 66-year-old Spanish teacher, Nahima Graber, in Fairfield, Iowa. Her body was found uh, concealed under a tarp, wheelbarrow, and railroad ties. They're currently charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy. So I don't know, like, the lawyers for the two of them were like, hey, listen, I know their bond is like a million dollars, but could you like lower that no. and maybe let them go home for Christmas? No, because how did they learn how to bury the body? Did they did they learn that in like shop class or something like that? Who knows? <laughs> like and you just hid it on the school location just under a bunch of junk? Yeah. No, no. I'm sorry, children. You have to stay in prison. <laughs> That's why kids are just... Well, and then the prosecutor responded by saying the bond definitely should be at a million or raised to two million for both of them, for uh, each of them. I mean, honestly, he's right. He was like, a million dollar cash only bond judge is so far unobtainable that it is essentially amounts to pretrial detention without bond. That's what the public defender said. Hmm. I'm like, y'all have no problem doing that to black people. 
There was a kid in New York. He was a teenager when he went into jail. And they arrested him for stealing a laptop that he didn't even sell. He didn't even steal. He was borrowing it from his school in New York. And they kept him in, like, that big New York prison, Mm -hmm. the big scary one, for years. Yep. Never giving him a trial or anything and making his bond outrageous. So, I listen... And that's for that was for theft, and it shouldn't have been that high, and he shouldn't have been kept in there for what was a misdemeanor. But for first degree, for capital murder, absolutely, you can stay, buddy. A million dollars makes sense. Look, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the woke side of our court system right now, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean. That that written house, he was out on bond. Exactly. Well, that's because that Christian like. Uh, fun site raised like millions of dollars for him. Which is they paid his outrageous bond. Which is ridiculous. He was out I, drinking. I think there shouldn't have been like honestly. I, I when it comes down to murder and there's like clear evidence, why do we need a bond? Yeah, like no, you're staying in there. I'm sorry, you're not getting out till trial. Yeah, you, over. you don't get to leave. Like people who get out on bond are people who like stole a pair of leggings from the store. What's that? What's that saying? Guilty until proven innocent. It's so, innocent until proven guilty, but no, I mean, guilty until proven innocent. That's my <laughs> way. <laughs> oh my well, god! So the kids' attorneys asked for house arrest and like monitoring, and no. they're like, these kids don't have the ability to flee. They're like the one kid, Goodall. His dad works in construction. And they're like his parents only have like ten thousand dollars liquid, and I'm like that so, ten thousand dollars is enough to leave the country what are you talking about yeah and what do you mean they don't have the ability to flee they had the ability to kill so obviously they can find a way to get their ass out of the country well the the jefferson county uh, attorney was just like there's no outside level of supervision that will guarantee the safety of the community mm-hmm. like true you're too. being locked up not because it's a not because this is part of your punishment but as a means to like protect the rest of us from you two weirdos absolutely and and here's the best thing do you want to know how they found out hmm. apparently they wrote about it on facebook oh my fucking god they wrote about it on social media stop <laughs> stop and the police got a tip that it was them based on a post that somebody that they made <sighs> Talking about how they were going to kill their teacher. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you should definitely be locked up. <laughs> right? This was premeditated and everything. Yeah. And I feel so bad for Graber's family because, like, reported missing November 2nd. So that means all through, like, for weeks they didn't know what was going on. Like, this is so sad. Yeah, that's crazy. They have both waived their right to a speedy trial, which means they're trying to push this out for as long as possible. Oh, I love those. Those are my mm-hmm. favorite. But the judge says that sometime next week he will come up with something that he thinks is suitable. I hope the judge does not allow them to leave. Screw you. You don't get Christmas. You murdered somebody. <laughs> yeah. You you made someone miss their Christmas for the rest of their life. No, right. Thank no you. more Christmases for you. What about that that your teacher's kids and grandkids? Yeah. Suck. Yeah. You're terrible. But yeah, I just thought the audacity was hilarious. Maybe. And that's mine. So what do you got for me? Okay, so for for mine this week, I have an update for um, the the story I talked about last episode. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what that was? The the, nope. the dad the dad killed the boyfriend. Oh, right. So, um, 
was it justified? No, not at all. So it turns out that the guy who turned, who killed the boyfriend, the boyfriend didn't do anything. Oh no! At all. So this, is, so you know, I was like, when I was reading, I was like, oh, well, this is like the uh, you know taken. So you know, dad, he's saving his daughter and stuff, and. Mm-hmm. After this was updated, when was it like no like over the break, over our break, um, mm-hmm. you know, some new information came out and So wait, what really happened then? Apparently the the boyfriend who's nineteen years who who was nineteen years old, he's actually okay. he was actually um a disabled guy. A disabled guy. Um so he had autism and cerebral palsy. And his parents, so his parents, his family, they, they, you know, talked to reporters and stuff. They were like, there are no, there's no way our son, 19 years old, who is disabled, has any ties to sex traffickers. Like, this is ridiculous. And it would be highly unlikely. Yeah, exactly. And the only reason why, um, this this dad made up this story is because he wanted to like lessen his sentence and just to throw my son in the bus. Wow. Yeah. So that's 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 disgusting. Did he explain at why the he dad? All? I don't. Oh, goodness. Um. It doesn't have it in this report I'm reading. This is basically just from the parent side mm-hmm. and um yeah they're just you know expressing how they feel about it and like they, they they're saying like they spent a whole year just looking for the son just waiting for him to come back and wow. yeah and then they were both being trafficked it's you know and, and then it sucks uh, that, that would be terrible too but like and then it sucks that they hear about their son's death on the news, like, and it and by the guy who killed him. So that's, ugh. Yeah. So I'm. Not, and it's a lie. Wow. And it's a whole lie. I'm not sure. Let's see. Is this not coming? Brutal. I'm trying to figure out why the hell he did it. Maybe he's not telling. I mean, a lot of them suddenly <clears throat> clamp up. You know. Yeah. When they have to answer for their behaviors, but it's it's just weird. Like you you think like yeah, there's this this great dad. This story was like this because like I was like yes, I would do the same right, thing. Yeah, and then it goes to find out. Wait, so he just killed this kid for for what reason? I'm like, uh, what if it ends up being something awful, Brian? Mm. Like he didn't want his daughter to be with somebody disabled. I mean, like people do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's sad. And it's like I think the parents said they were friends. I don't think they were dating. It was just they were friends. It's weird. This is just all sorts of crazy then. Yeah, I have to read more into it, but 
Like, and it's just like, I was, I was just like, yeah, get that kid. But then you're like, wait a second. This guy did what to this kid? Never mind. Nothing. They did nothing. Yeah. So that's, um, that's my story for this week. Nice update. Get ready to not feel any better. Hooray. So this time last year, I started my TikTok. I think it was actually December 15th. And this killer is that I spoke about because I was trying to do like what I called like my 12 days of killness. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite get to it because it's very difficult to do that kind of stuff when you're it's also Christmas time. So I might record them early this year and try again. But regardless. Uh, have you ever heard of the Mockingbird Hill Massacre? That sounds familiar, yeah. This is the story of a very disturbed dad who believed that his family and friends had betrayed him, and he went on a killing spree from December 22nd, 1987 to December 28th, systematically killing 14 members of his family, two ex-co-workers, and injuring four other people. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Okay. Yep, and that is the, uh, I don't want to say lovely, but Ronald Eugene Simmons. And, of course, like we always ask every week, what makes somebody do this? Because it's kind of a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll start at the beginning. Ronald Gene Simmons was born July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons. There isn't a whole lot known about his first couple years in life. And to be honest, the Simmons family has not wanted to talk about this man at all because they're pretty ashamed of their now infamous family member. But for his first three years in life, uh, he was just a regular little kid. Nothing strange, weird or traumatic happened to him, really. Though the first major shift in Ronald's life happened when he was about almost three years old. January 1943, uh, William Simmons had a lethal stroke. With that death, any semblance of financial stability was gone for the family. And Loretta was alive during the Great Depression, and she was very scared. Because she knew what, like, real hunger felt like. And she didn't want to go through that kind of financial instability ever again. And since single moms really couldn't do anything to provide for themselves in the 1940s, she did what every woman in the past did to make sure they didn't die. She got a new man. Right. Yep. And they got married before the end of 1943. So literally within like a year. Oh, well. Ronald's new stepfather was William D. Griffin. He was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And as was very common for military families, they moved a lot. They first moved to Arkansas, but then they moved again and again and again. And it was almost more than a normal army. Because normally when you, you know, get deployed, it's for a couple years at least. Mm-hmm. But because of his job as an engineer, we're talking about moving like six to eight months. Like, just moving, moving, moving. So Mm. I would say this was the first place where Ronald really struggled because he had no 
ounce of security in terms of his home life. They would need him somewhere else in the country and he'd move the whole family. They were moving at least once a year. It's also when school got to be kind of terrible for him. He didn't make any friends. Uh, He never really got to stop being the new kid and his social skills were very lacking. In fact, he's kind of became the opposite of like the new kid and he became a bully. Ooh. And he stopped doing really any of his homework. So then when kids made fun of him for like his bad test scores or he would just start fights. Sometimes all it would take was a small laugh at his expense and he would just start like wailing on people. And since they were never really in any town long enough for the teachers or guidance counselors to get like a hold on talking to him, it just kind of got written off as like boys being boys. This is just Ronald. He's just a rowdy kid. Right. Yeah. Well, this all reaches a peak in about when he's 16. At at his school, he was a tyrant and they were just like, we're done. We're done. So they he got expelled. And his stepdad is just like, you know what? Maybe a military school will help them. And the thing is, military schools back then aren't like ROTC programs now. They were very strict and they were really made to like break bad kids versus teach them things. Mm-hmm. However, this is kind of what Ronald needed. He didn't break like they wanted. Instead, he flourished because he got to be there longer than just a couple months. He loved the consistency, and for the first time in his life, he started excelling at school. There was peace in every day being exactly the same. He'd wake up before the sun came up, get his clothes ready, clean his bunk for inspection, shower, exercise, march, do drills, go to school. Every moment. What'd you say? Oh, I was going to say, this is like that. This is like another story you told. And Well... Like he, well, no, that guy did not do well in this school. Uh, okay, 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 monster. okay. He he wasn't like thriving in the schools in per se, but like he he didn't break either. Like they wanted him to. You know what I mean? No, no, you're right. So that's what that's what like that's the connection I got from that. I was like, oh well, yeah, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. No, no, I was trying to remember exactly what episode that is. Uh, what was his name? <laughs> was that Carl Panzerum? Possibly. I think so. I think it was Carl Panzerum. In the beginning, like, they really tried to crack that nut. Yeah. But, uh, that was a, a madman. But this, this one's not a madman yet. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, just Ronald loved that every day was exactly the same. It was wonderful. The problem was, after a year, they were like, he's great. He doesn't need to be here anymore. And they released him. Uh, Bad choice. very upset. In fact, he dropped out and joined the Navy. Oh, wow. So his first post was a Bremerton Naval Base in Washington State. There, he immediately met this woman who was known for being very beautiful. She had very long black hair. Her name was, and I, I don't know if it was Bursabi, Bursab, Rebecca Ulabari. And she wasn't really initially interested in the very solemn Ronald. 
but he was persistent and respectful. He called her Becky. He made her laugh. And the fact that he was willing to go slow was a plus for her. She didn't get a chance to really see who he was under that facade until they had already moved in with each other a couple months into 1958. The unshaky, like, like I said, people don't understand uh, abuse stuff until it, it starts subtly. So there were already things like that in, the, in 1958, but he got redeployed in New Mexico, and so she followed him. They got married there July 9th, 1960, just a couple days before Ronald turned 20. When they were in Washington, it started with him being meticulous about how the house was kept. And Becky was just like, you know what? It's nice to date a man who's neat. And this is from his time in military school. He wouldn't blow up at her, but there was always this like simmering anger whenever she understood that she messed up. By the time they were settled in New Mexico and married, he started deciding what she could wear, how she was allowed to wear her hair, how much time she could spend with people outside the house. Ronald was afraid because she was so beautiful. He was sure if he allowed her out and about, she would cheat on him He had no understanding of loyalty or love, really. Hmm. He didn't feel like he was particularly loved in his life. And the closest he got to an understanding of loyalty was that of the military, but that was of being subordinate to somebody else. Right, yeah. He isolated her by convincing her to cut ties with her family. He made sure that all of her mail went through him. If she got a letter from family members, he would just ignore it or throw it out. He made it so every moment of her life went through him and revolved around him and making him happy. Mm, And the thing was, maybe, like, all these relationships, if the person would be reasonable, then, like, it wouldn't even be that bad. Right, yeah. It's it's like um, he's just just trying to control her life, basically. If he can't, he doesn't understand romantic side of love he just understands the controlling side of it well so he longed for the perfection of military school but in his personal life and becky couldn't live up to those standards so he made her believe that the reason he was unhappy is because she was just so stupid oh my god she did yeah She did everything she could to be the wife he wanted, and he rewarded her with insults whenever he wasn't in a good mood. And this is one of the things that people understand until it, like, happens to you. I was never involved in anything this bad, but I I did spend eight years in something pretty abusive. And you get torn down by somebody who you love, and they undermine, like, who you are. And to the point now where I still kind of experience echoes of the abuse, even though I'm many years removed from it. The only difference is that in the 2010s, I could leave. Becky didn't necessarily have that option in 1960. It wasn't until the 1970s that women can own their own credit card. 1978, when the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978 was passed. Before then, they could just fire you if you got pregnant. Wow. Which is a terrible thing to do, because now you have a baby and you need money. Yeah, exactly. How do you expect you to support yourself? Crazy. Well... And the most probably depressing fact was that spousal rape was not criminalized in all 50 states until 1993. 
ridiculous. So completely isolated from her family, desperate to please her husband, Becky gets pregnant. She gives birth to Ronald Gene Simmons Jr. in 1961. And after the birth of his first child, Ronald becomes even worse. He starts setting schedules for all the meals, setting schedules for when Becky can do the laundry, when she's allowed to clean the house. He paid all the bills, but he gave her this very small allowance for the groceries, which was never enough to actually buy the groceries. And the police didn't learn until much later, after reading a lot of Becky's diaries, that she always thought that they were poor. She didn't realize. Wow. She she didn't realize that he was just being a cheapskate who never wanted to spend money on anything other than what he wanted. So him and all of his kids, like Becky and all the kids grew up thinking that they were broke. And it, well, it gets worse because eventually where they moved to the place looks a mess, but I'll get into that later. So in 1963, he finishes his time with the Navy. They have their second child in October of that year. Her name was Sheila Marie Simmons. And Ronald adored this kid from the jump. Like, too much. Ronald got a job at a bank, and he did really well for himself at work. But at home, he was like a dictator. He would hover over Becky while she tried to complete her regular tasks. He would mock her and criticize her for whatever she was doing. And of course he did this in front of the kids. Mm. He stopped letting her leave the house at all. Unless he was with her. And then he also made a schedule of times that she was allowed to leave. So she couldn't just be like, oh, I'm done the cleaning. Let's go get the, you know, groceries. He'd be like, no, we get the groceries on this day at this time. He also didn't allow a phone in the house. I mean, yeah, that that makes sense for what he was trying to do, be controlling and give her no way of communicating with the outside world. Mm -hmm. He never let his kids go see their friends or make any friends. And then over the next few years, they have five more children. William, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca Lynn. As soon as the kids are old enough to do things around the house, they all get tasks and are expected to do them expertly or face the wrath of Ronald. It was never him hitting them. It was definitely, though, the expectation of perfection, which is damaging in itself. Mm -hmm. Things calmed down a little bit uh, when he joins the Air Force in 1965. He would stay with the military for an additional 20 years. Now, during this time period, the next, like, 10 years or so, no love for Becky. And he didn't like most of his kids either. The only kid he liked was Sheila. And by 1976, when Sheila was 13, Ronald was spending all of his free time with her. Was she his only girl? No. He has Loretta, Marianne, Rebecca. So... That's so okay. But she's his oldest girl, though. So. Yes, his oldest girl. Huh, okay. Of course, this causes a rift in the, the family with the children. And I can only imagine how Becky felt like here's this grown adult man not wanting to 
you know. Oh, yeah, it's just weird. It's going to get worse. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> well, like, so 1978, around Chris- Christmas time, uh, he allowed the family to go to Becky's sister's house for the holidays. Becky's family was like, this is weird. She found the way that Ronald and the kids behaved to be very disconcerting. They were all like little soldiers. They never spoke out of turn. They didn't show any normal childlike excitement for things. And the sister specifically also like, because she wrote about this in a letter. She's just like, here's this 15 year old girl, Sheila walks across the room and like lays herself on her dad's lap as if she were a toddler and Mm. not a woman approaching adulthood. That's a little young woman. Yeah. Then she turns and kisses her father, not on the cheek, but on the lips. None of the Simmons family reacts. This was the norm for their household. But Becky's sister was like, this is weird. Like, you know, this is weird, right? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, Ronald retires from a 22-year career in the military in 1979. Despite the fact that he was a pretty terrible monster in his house, he did really well in the military. Uh, His final career rank was Master Sergeant. He earned a Bronze Star. Uh, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman and the Air Force Ribbon for excellent marksmanship. He was very good with a 22 caliber pistol. They received all honors and they retired to Cloudcroft, New Mexico. By the time they retire, though, all affection for Becky disappears. It's replaced by Sheila. Like, to the point where when they would go on, like, a trip to the grocery store, Sheila gets to ride in the front seat of the car next to him. What the hell? Now, Becky just kind of took it, but Gene Jr. was sick and tired of it. And he'd sat and watched Sheila get showered with gifts and clothes and money and jewelry while the rest of the kids had to beg him for money for their school lunches. Right. He had information that was going to prove that his father was a terrible man but he knew he had to be wise in how he was going to let the world know. He knew that Ronald had been molesting his sister since she was 15. And there was an even bigger secret that was happening. But he knew he couldn't go to the police because the police were all buddies of his dad. So he writes an anonymous note and submits it to the guidance counselor that simply says, Sheila Simmons is pregnant. Oh, oh. oh. Scandalous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the school pulls Becky and Ronald and Sheila into the guidance office. And Sheila, of course, denies being pregnant over and over again. But fairly soon, the proof is there in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. The guidance counselor keeps meeting with Sheila to try and figure out who the father was. At this point now, it's 1980 and Sheila is 17. So it wasn't a legality issue. The age of consent in New Mexico was 17. Mm-hmm. But the teachers and her family were like, Who is she sleeping with? She doesn't even have a boyfriend. She doesn't even leave the house. Yeah, she doesn't even leave the house. How did this happen? Well, after a month of constant meetings with Sheila, Sheila finally admits to the guidance counselor that the father of her child is her own father, Ronald Jean Simmons. The school reports this to the police right away. Charges are filed, but Sheila's like, I'm not going to testify against my dad Mm -hmm. she refused like they bring her in for an interview at the police station she won't talk she outright just says 
I'm not going to say anything. Now, despite the fact that Sheila was loyal to her dad, he's mad at her. <clears throat> for what? <laughs> he blames Sheila for her own sexual molestation. In fact, he writes a multi-page letter that... Excuse me, what? He Wait, wait, hold... No, hold on. <laughs> no, hold on. <laughs> no. What do you mean? He writes a multi-page letter that we only know about because it gets pulled into evidence later on in 87 in a trial. Oh, my God. But in this letter, he blames her for trying to ruin his life and destroy their family. Direct quote here. You have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. I didn't ask to be molested. Thank you. Oh, okay. No. The police tried to investigate this as best they could, but there was little that they could get from the family. Poor Becky falls into just a deep depression. I can see why. Uh, and March of 1981... Ronald drops Sheila off at prom and then tells the rest of the family Sheila's pregnant. They don't know who the father is. Of course, Becky knows, and so does Gene Jr. I'm guessing because he probably heard his dad skulking about, you know, at night. Uh, yeah, I- I'm pretty sure, like, everybody in the house would know what's well, been going always. on. Like, I'm sure some of the younger kids did. And they were, like, you know, a good chunk of age younger. They're all roughly a couple years apart. Okay. But Ronald says to the kids, you are not allowed to talk to anybody about this. I don't know why he thought he could control this narrative because the police already knew. Yeah, like, what do you think is going to happen, buddy? It definitely gets out around town. And the, the Altero County Office of Social Services decides to pay a visit. And I think at this point... Like, Sheila might be a little freaked out by all these, like, professional people who are coming and talking to her. Because mm-hmm. she tells the social worker, yes, Ronald's the father, like, my dad's my father and my child, and he's been molesting me for the last, like, two and a half years. Oh, my God. The whole family's ordered to go through counseling. And this is the moment when I was reading about uh, Ronald Eugene's image that I realized that he was absolutely nuts. Like, there were no signs that he was nuts, but he was nuts or just straight evil because he definitely told the therapist that he raped Sheila for her own good as a means to protect her from men outside of the home and to teach her. What what are you teaching her? That's that's not something you teach your your child. That's no. He saw absolutely nothing wrong with anything he'd done and he dismissed all questions from the therapist after that being like, this is family business and y'all need to all mind your business. Um, sorry, you broke the law. Well, this is the first time that Becky tries to leave Ronald. She's ashamed. Ronald's miserable flying into rages at home. Gene Jr. is like, this is my time to go. (laughs) 
the the every the you know the the house is falling apart. He dips. Smart. Now Ronald might have been flippant with the counselor, but the local district attorney Steve Sanders was not okay with child abusers, and he was gunning for him. Even if he couldn't prove rape with the pregnancy, he was going to get Ronald Simmons for incest because that's illegal too. Mm-hmm. So the intention there was to get the evidence like through doing like the blood test after the baby was born because we didn't have DNA sequencing like we have now right. to prove exact paternity. But if they could prove that the DNA, you know, that the, the blood type was the same or whatnot, they were going to figure it out. But as soon as Sheila gave birth to her baby girl, Sylvia Gale, Ronald grabs the whole family, moves them to Arkansas. Oh, my God. No baby, no family, nobody to prosecute. So the investigation stops and the charges just disappear. What? No, that's not how it's supposed to Well, they don't fully disappear. (laughs) Like, there's still a warrant out for his arrest. Right, okay. But they can't, like, there's no interstate network here to find him. No, okay, I gotcha. Okay. So they're just like, we can't find him anymore. So first they stop in Ward, Ward, Arkansas, Mm -hmm. and they go back to being very shut off from the world. In fact, there's very little documentation about what happens over the next two years. We don't know how Ronald made any money, but it definitely wasn't by legal means, probably something under under the table. If they were renting, he was probably paying for it in cash. We do know that Sheila took some classes at a business school in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, because she was on the the school roster. And according to her mother's diaries, uh, Ronald thought this was a great idea until Sheila began dating a man named Dennis McNulty. And then Ronald was like, no, 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 no school for you. Oh, God. Also, apparently during this time, he continued to rape Sheila. It was not consensual by any means. Oh, my God. And despite being uh, outwardly Catholic and pro-life, he did get uh, Sheila an abortion in secret. Wait, uh, wait, wait. Uh, she had another baby? No, she had an abortion. He got her an abortion in private, in secret. No, I mean. But he got her pregnant a second time, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. So the family resurfaces again in 1983, this time in Dover, Arkansas, on Mockingbird Hill. Somehow, Ronald manages to save enough money to buy 13 and a half acres of land about six miles outside of Dover. He had this great plan that he was going to live and be off the grid and nobody was going to be in his business. (laughs) He jerry-rigs two mobile homes together and that's his house. No phone, no indoor plumbing other than the shower. He improperly creates an outhouse that isn't deep enough or made correctly so that it overflows in the rain. They had to use water from rain buckets to cook and clean. Ronald had this complete fantasy that he was somehow going to turn his land into this self-sufficient farm. What he purchased was a rocky, overgrown, abandoned lot. Um, you know what this sounds like, right? Another one of our stories where they bought crappy land? I mean, yeah, probably that too. But no, this sounds like, I don't know, like cult-ish. 
this it's it's just sounding a little bit of cultish right he there. He does have a hint of the the cultish life, like uh Charles Ng and uh, yeah, um, and like From rock, a couple like Rock Terrio, definitely. Well, it, it, I mean, it, I guess it sounds you know like with uh what was it Charles Ng and Leonard Lake? They were also building that. Yes, yes, they were. Yep, they were building that too. So I, maybe this was just part of the time that this was something people were really into. I mean, people still are into living off the grid. And I mean, for a couple of years, uh, my best friend wanted to like move to like South America and like live on like a commune. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Living off the grid, that's, 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 that's yeah, that's cool. Uh huh. It's one of your goals too. I hear it in your it, voice. It, it's cool. I mean, you know, but like, uh, I mean, but like, like I don't know, I don't know. Just, just the uh, him, him, and what he does, and how, and what he did. It's just it sounds a little, little bit cultish. Mm-hmm. Well, then you also have like the the Charles Manson esque like having sex with your kids thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, he decides he's going to use his kids. To try and make this weird farm fantasy come to life. No, that always works out. Now, in New Mexico, they were living kind of crappily because he was being a cheapskate. Near Dover, Arkansas, they were living terribly because he didn't have any resources anymore. He couldn't collect his military pension because he was literally on the run for a sex crime. Like, if he had tried to collect it and let the feds know where he was... Mm -hmm they were going to be able to find him. Right, yeah. And buying that abandoned lot put him into incredible debt. So he starts working like low-wage, under-the-table jobs, and he changes jobs often. Now, the older Simmons kids were pretty tired of Ronald's shenanigans. (laughs) Gene Jr.'s already gone, and that had planted seeds in the other older children. Maybe Ronald's not as powerful as he always seemed. As the kids are contemplating an escape, Ronald makes them all build this 10-foot-tall fence that goes partially around the house made of cinder blocks, which he was just picking up randomly all over the place and dropping off on the property, even demanding that their, like, five-year-old carry, like, cinder blocks, which I googled. I don't know if they were less weight then, but right now a cinder block is, like, 35 pounds. So I'm like, are you having like the five year old and the eight year old like carry a 35 pound cinder block together? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure they'd probably weighed more back then. That just makes yeah, sense. Yeah, right now they're about 35 pounds. That's a lot for like five, six year old. Like, there's like five year old, an eight year old, 11 year old right now. That's oh. a lot for little kids to be trying to carry together. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, this was because he didn't want anybody to see what was going on in his house. Now, anybody who spent time with Ronald was is pretty positive at this point. He doesn't see women as people. He saw Becky as a woman who could satisfy his sexual needs. He used her, impregnated her, and then when his daughter was old enough to be someone he found sexually arousing, he impregnated her multiple times. And the only reason why he was done with her was because she had sullied herself by having a relationship with another adult man. No. So, side note, Danny, nice guy. He stayed with Sheila to the very end. Okay. He actually was not a bad dude. He, in the end, even adopted her daughter. 
But oh, wow. um, yeah, Danny McNulty was not a bad person. It's just unfortunate that he had to be anywhere in the circumference of uh, Ronald Simmons. Yeah. Well, so he manages to get this job at a clerk at a law firm in Russellville, which isn't that far from Dover. And he had an impressive attention to detail from being in the military. And his bosses were like, this is awesome. However, he was very inappropriate with every woman in the office. It was pretty common during that time period for women to mostly be secretaries. He found himself attracted to a woman named Kathy Kendricks. Kathy, at this point, he's in his late 40s. And Kathy is like 19. Whoa. Like, she's just out of school trying to make some money, figure out her life. And this old dude is like hitting on her like every day at work. Mm -hmm. And at first, he kind of tries to love bomber. Flowers, candy cards let me take you out on a date kathy but kathy had been raised by the same kind of man that ronald was and she was like i know exactly what this is and i am not interested smart good for you you're abusive yes she didn't want his attention and she let him know in no uncertain terms she actually started reporting him to their bosses saying that he was lewd and overly flirtatious originally the bosses were like listen he's a little weird he was in the military like He's just a creepy old guy. He's not doing anything bad. Like, can you just deal with it? Like, you're a good worker. He's a good worker. We don't want to lose either of you. Excuse me? No. That's well, not how it works out. <laughs> it's not. Well, the problem is when you let somebody keep bypassing boundaries like that, it escalates. So one day when they're at the office, he corners her and she described it as being very close to a sexual assault. That last bit was the last draw for his bosses. They fire him immediately. It's one thing to make little sexist comments in the office and another thing to put your hands on somebody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the sexist comments are terrible too, but his bosses were like, listen, you're now a liability. We can't have you in here touching the young ladies. Mm -hmm. Now, Ronald had never been rejected by a woman. And he was very upset. Oh, no. Now, he knew better than to leave a mark on the children because they still had to go to school and people saw them at school. So he started taking out his frustrations on Becky, both physically and sexually. One day, Becky walks out of the house with the intention of just never coming back. But she realizes, like she talked about this in her diary, that the kids were going to then be at. Uh, Yeah, at his mercy, at at risk. Mm -hmm. So she walked back home. Ronald, of course, saw this as a complete and utter betrayal. He's like, whatever, I'll wait. I'll get my revenge on on you later. He starts hoarding things. More cinder blocks, pallets, sheets of tin, car parts that he has the kids like moving around the lot. He gets a new job at an oil company. Now, folks knew that he was a nasty old guy. He was a creepy old man. But he played it off as if Kathy was just a bitter ex-lover. However, he couldn't keep his nice guy act going for very long. And he starts fights with his bosses and his fellow employees. He starts making passes at the young girls in the office. And he's back to looking for a new job. Oh, goodness. This pattern continues. Um, Becky keeps trying to leave. 
The children, though, are having a solid social life, finally. They're making friends at school since Ronald was either working or out looking for work. Or, you know, doing his little under-the-table under things to make money in the meantime before he could get a real gig. Right. Yeah. None of them were ever stupid enough to bring a kid home, a friend home. But, you know, at least they could go to town to hang out with their friends. Yeah, I don't even know what Ronald would do if they would have brought a stranger into his house. Mm. So Ronald gets a new job at the Woodline Motor Freight as a clerk. It's 1986. His past behavior has been forgiven since he was a veteran. And his weird behavior was written off as like shell shock, which we know to be post-traumatic stress. Right. He was in the Vietnam War. He decides he's not going to hit on women at this new job. This was a good job that paid well. And he's not going to make the same mistakes. He might be a psychopath, but he's not stupid. At this job, he got along well with his coworkers, but he had a major issue with a woman. An even bigger issue with civilian superiors who he felt thought they were better than him. So his new boss is a woman. Oh, <laughs> He already doesn't like the fact that civilian people think they're better than him. He only seems to like people being above him when it's in the military. His new boss is Joyce Elaine Butts. Joyce recognizes Donald for who he is, an egotistical brat who doesn't know how to follow simple instructions. They butt heads constantly, and he would go over her head to the owners for like the smallest things. Which irritated the owners because they're like, I gave you a supervisor. Go talk to her. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want to talk to Joyce because she sucks. No. So then Joyce learns that Ronald has been like taking his breaks and going back to his old job and leaving like flowers and candy and cards for Kathy Kendrick. Are you kidding me? What the hell? So Joyce starts like making jokes around the office and everybody else does too. Like. And they're like, come on, dude, you know, like, leave this girl who's, like, 20 alone. Yeah, what are you, like, 60? God. At this point, he's, like, 49. And I know, I'm just... <laughs> Ronald starts... Well, he was already a paranoid guy. But now the paranoia fixates on the women of Russellville. And he's like, all these women are conspiring against me. Sometime in 1986, he learns that his kids have betrayed him by having friends. Uh, he quits his job with the oil company. Decides he wants a job where he can be around other Vietnam vets. No women are his superior. And he ends up applying to work at the Sinclair Mini Mart, which paid a lot less. And he was miserable. But he did make a friend, like his only friend in life. A former Marine and Vietnam vet named Bill Mason. Bill was one of the few people that Ronald trusted. He was open with the vet, and Bill realized that Ronald was a really angry guy. But he was like, he's a lot like a lot of the veterans, you know, that I've met over the years. That's how Bill kind of looked at it. <laughs> Some of the children, though, finally have enough. Oldest boy, next oldest boy, William, moves out, starts a family of his own. Sheila makes plans to move out with her longtime boyfriend, Dennis, who, like I said, hadn't abandoned her even after she told him that uh, the baby was from molestation and incest. Right. This the, the way this goes down is really messed up. Like, it's not, but it is. 
like Ronald comes home from work one night and he's like, strange car in the driveway, strange man in the house. Is she, you know, is Becky cheating on me? Nope. It's Sheila's boyfriend. And Dennis, like he tries to like be very straight. Like, listen, I've been dating your daughter for a while since y'all were in like ward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm very serious about her. Like she's in her early twenties. I'm in my mid twenties. I would like to date her. He's like, even says, like, I'm going to adopt Sylvia Gale. And Dan, like, Ronald totally, like, tries to, like, talk trash about him. And it's just like, you know, well, kids aren't like pets. You know, you can't just throw them out. And, like, Dennis tells him, I know that you're her father. He's like, and it doesn't matter. I'm still going to take care of her. And it really isn't. He's like, I, I did this as a courtesy. <laughs> yeah like I like can't... we get married i don't give a damn like this is just me being nice like honestly i could just say you know kiss my ass and just go yep and that's really how it ended um sheila leaves too now the family is sure ronald's gonna freak out but instead he goes like silent he stops like bothering anybody in the house Becky starts writing letters to her family, reconnecting with people she hadn't spoken to in years. The kids get social lives. They all start, like, the, all the older ones start dating. She actually wrote to her son, William, telling him that she was going to leave Ronald for good. She just wanted one last Christmas with the family. She asked William if uh, they're, I think I was, uh, Loretta would have been around 11 or 12, if Loretta could move in with him. She told William... I remembered a lot what you said to Bill or what you said to me, Bill. I am a prisoner here and the kids too. I know that when I get out, I might need help. Dad has had me like a prisoner. The freedom might be hard for me to take it. I know it would be great having my children visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping when I want, going to church. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. I don't know if Ronald ever saw that letter or knew what was coming. But he quit his job at the Mini Mart a couple weeks later on December 18th, 1987. And between December 18th and December 22nd, he decided he was going to kill his entire family. He pretty much stayed in his room day and night, drinking himself to sleep until he ran out of cash. Uh, He bought a new gun. Uh, When Sheila left, Becky had asked him about celebrating Christmas this year. And he was like, sure, whatever. She didn't know that Ronald didn't plan for her to ever make it to the day. Um, But he allowed her to use some of their savings to buy everybody gifts, decorate the house. Like, she went all out. She was so happy. Aw. Aw. In the days before the massacre, they were the most peaceful days that the Simmons probably ever had. Which probably should have been a sign to them that something bad was coming. But they were so gracious for a few days of no snide remarks and, you know, their dad not insulting them that they just enjoyed it the only thing he asked the children to do before the 22nd was dig a large hole out behind the house considering he wasn't yelling or screaming they did it and they didn't ask any questions nope not realizing that he was asking them to dig their own grave we're gonna say this next part is the part where things get real sad real fast so December 22nd 1987 after the youngest children went to school Ronald went into the room where Jean was sleeping Uh, Jean Jr. had brought his young daughter Barbara 
who was only three, to the house for the holidays because mom had asked. Gene Jr. was barely able to recognize what was happening before his father began to beat him repeatedly with a metal pipe. When Becky heard the sound, she ran into the other room. He left and he hit Becky across the chest with the pipe and began hitting her over and over again. Somehow, she manages to survive this initial attack, so he pulls out his pistol and puts a bullet in her head. The sound of the gunshot sets off Barbara, who begins screaming. He picks her up, chokes her to death by hand, and then drops her on the same bed as her father, where he realizes that Gene Jr. is still alive, and then empties the clip in him. Puts their bodies in a wheelbarrow, dumps them into the pit that the children had dug, douses their bodies in kerosene, and then he just sits and watches TV for hours for the rest of the day, drinking. He, like, kind of made a little attempt to clean up the blood (coughs) in, like, the living room, and he tossed all the bloody bedding into the pit as well. So then school ends. Loretta, who's now 17, Eddie, 14, Marianne, 11, and Rebecca, 8, all come home from school. He greets them in the yard. He's smiling. He's like, I have a surprise for you, but I can only show you one by one. They're very suspicious. (laughs) But he's just like, listen, you know your mom. She's been going crazy about Christmas. She just said I had to bring you in one by one. So he let the kids sit in his car and listen to Christmas songs. He takes them into the house one by one. There he wraps a cord around their necks drowns each child in the rain bin inside of the house this was simpler and cleaner than beating them with the pipe he took them all outside poured kerosene on their corpses took barbed wire laid it out across the bodies rolled a tarp over them and then dropped cinder blocks on top of them now william and his wife renata and their newborn trey as well as sheila And Sylvia and uh, Dennis were all scheduled to arrive the day after Christmas. So Ronald doesn't do anything. He doesn't go anywhere. He just works his way through the alcohol in the house and he waits. Four days later, he prepares and sets everything up. He'd been a sharpshooter in the military. And Becky had been so excited that she had planned everything out. So the goal here was that William, Renata, and Trey were going to start or arrive around midday. Mm -hmm. William was going to show up first to see how Ronald was doing and if he was in the mood to see Sheila and her husband. Instead, what happened was that the family rode up, pulled the baby out of the car, and Ronald shot William from on the porch. Wow. Renata went to help him, and Ronald shot her too. They were both expert shots directly through the head. Trey was left standing there staring at his parents in shock. He picks Trey up, dumps him head first into the like cold rain bucket on the porch, holding him by the ankles so that he is completely submerged in the water. Mm-hmm. He hauls their bodies inside the house and then just lays them in the middle of the living room, like in a row, moves his son car and waits for Sheila. So when Dennis and Sheila show up, He, go, he just calls out, like, hey, just come inside. Dennis walks into the house, first holding Sylvia's hand. Then Sheila follows with their son, 
Michael, who isn't even two yet. Mm-hmm. Sheila follows. Uh, he shoots Janice in the chest, shoots Sheila in the chest as well. She was dead right away, but he also emptied the clip into her body. And then choked both of the children by hand as well. He dragged all of those bodies and lined them up in the living room too. But he wrapped up Michael in plastic and dumped Michael's body in the woods randomly. Almost like Michael wasn't a member, like the the baby Michael wasn't like part of the family. Right. Uh, Yeah. He did the same thing with William's son, Trey. And then it was like Ronald didn't know what to do. Like that desire to kill was still there. There were still people out there who wronged him. And he thought about that like the whole next day. And then December 27th, like it hit him. I know who's who deserves to die. Kathy Kendrick. Oh, my God. So December 28th, he takes Jean's car to the law office of Peel, Eddie and Gibbons, where Kathy worked wearing a straw cowboy hat, which was a pretty crappy disguise because Kathy recognized him right away. And she actually stood up to like walk and go tell the, the lawyers, uh, the secretaries and lawyers in the back could hear her scream. There was actually a client in the front who witnessed Ronald shoot Kathy in the back of the head. And as Ronald just walks out, the guy's like, he shot her. Like he shot her. This shot was not clean like it had been with the others because I think he was amped up mm-hmm. and she was moving. Uh, though there's also the wonder that with the amount of skill that he had, was this on purpose? Because she was still alive. Um, she died before the ambulance got there. No one at the office even knew who he was. So Ronald puts on a baseball cap and drives to the Taylor Oil Company. This time he's like, whatever. Also, he stops at Walmart before he gets there to re-up on all his ammunition. What? What? Yep. He just starts firing openly at anybody he sees. Oh, my God. He successfully kills J.D. Shavin, a trucker who was just there for some extra work. Now, his plan here was to kill Russell Taylor, who was the owner of Taylor Oil and Sinclair Mini Mart. He did shoot Russell twice, and what, but one of the secretaries jumped in front of the bullet. Uh, and so it did not hit the mark the way it was intended. Mm-hmm. They both decide to play dead. And Ronald's like, all right, good. And leaves. That's what you're supposed to do. You just, yeah, if you're still alive, play dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's why uh, Russell Taylor lived. Then he drives to Sinclair Mini Mart. Starts opening fire on two random customers in the store. He would have killed them if his friend Bill Mason wasn't there. Bill is like, oh, he's having a full-blown, you know, shell shock episode right now. So Bill starts throwing cans of soda at Ronald. The soda doesn't hurt him, but it does stop him from getting off any clean shots. And this is the first opposition that Ronald has faced at all. So he turns around and he leaves. Yeah, because all of his attacks have just been surprised. Yep. He wasn't expecting anybody at the mini-mart to fight back. But interestingly enough, I think he expected people to fight him back. But, like, he didn't realize that, like, only people who are, like, in the military would even know what to do in this situation. Yeah. Most people wouldn't. You know what I mean? I don't know. So, finally, he drives to Woodline Motor and Freight. 
He wants nothing more in the world than to kill Joyce Butts. <laughs> this time he walks in calmly, not shooting at random. He fires around into Joyce's chest and head. He would be surprised to learn later that she survives this. Yay. Then he locks himself in the office where a woman named Vicky Jackson is hiding. And she's like, ah, oh, he's going to kill me. But he's like, nah, call the police. He's like, I'm not going to hurt her. He's like, I'm not going to hurt you. I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. And he sits down and he makes small talk with Vicky. Oh, come on. I mean, okay. How was your Christmas? You, you enjoying the weather, Vicky? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was raining earlier, but, you know, it's 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 starting to clear up a lot. Well, at this point, though, nobody knows that he's been doing this across the whole city. And Vicky later told reporters that it was jarring how calm he was. Now, maybe he had a reason for this. Ronald was sure that they were going to arrest him and probably execute him. But he didn't want to shoot out because... He had seen in other situations where getting into a shootout with the police equals paralyzation or you're just in a vegetative state. He didn't want that. He wanted to die on his own terms. So the police arrive. He submits to them immediately. Hands over his gun, gets booked at the Polk County Police Department. While he's being a book for the attempted murder of Supervisor Joyce Butts, other phone calls start coming in about this bearded man with a gun who's been all over town killing people. As the calls come in, the police are like, did you go shoot people at the mini mart? And he's like, yup. Mm-hmm. And he just nods his head. And this happens for a while until they get all the attacks in town. And then the phone calls shift. Now it's not people calling about what he did. Now it's people from town calling and saying they're going to kill him. Oh. And the police aren't sure if he's safe in their tiny little small jail. So they take him to, Arcan to uh, the Arkansas State Hospital in Little Rock. The deputy, James Bolin, is the only one who recognizes Ronald and is like, you have a family up there on Mockingbird Hill. Are they all right? Ronald sits in the police car in silence and James swears that he saw Ronald break for just a second. His lip quivered. And he shed just a small tear in the backseat of the squad car. Hmm. Bolin calls for a wellness check on the family. Hmm. At the hospital, they examine him. They have him evaluated by a psychiatrist. While the psychiatrist is trying to talk to Ronald, the police walk into the massacre on Mockingbird Hill. Nobody's prepared for how bad it is. They actually have to request help from the state because no one in Pope County had ever dealt, not just with, like, like, they've had occasional crimes. People fight each other. One person dies. Person shoots each other at a bar. But this was 16 dead people in, in a couple days. Right. 14 of which were all decomposing. Uh, four wounded people. So they were requesting help from everybody they could. Ronald had left all manner of evidence. The hammers, pipes, cords were all still in the house covered in blood. They had no motive. They interviewed people in town. Nobody knew anything about him or their family. Becky's diary offered up a lot of the information that we know about the family. But they couldn't even find any extended family to interview right away. For three days straight, Ronald refuses to talk to the psychiatrist. 
The doctor is able to figure out that Ronald was very calculating and very smart, had a terrible temper, but they couldn't figure out why he would do this sort of thing. His name was Dr. Kuo, and he eventually tells the police, no, he's mentally competent. Go forward. They sent him to a state prison to await trial. They tried to hide his crime from the other inmates, but it took literally under a day. Yeah. Like, news spreads fast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it was the largest mass murder in Arkansas history, and it was on national television. Oh, my God. He had to be isolated for his own safety. Listen, no one likes a family annihilator. But then the news also came out of New Mexico that he was a pedophile who raped his own daughter. Mm. And no one in prison likes a pedo. No, no, it does. Now, he was given two public defenders, Robert Doc Irwin and John Harris. He told them he just wanted to plead guilty to everything, and I don't want you to be my lawyer. They tried their best to give him a solid defense. They argued the jury pool was tainted because it was national news. They tried to get the warrant in New Mexico squashed. It didn't matter. They gave him 147 years in prison. He's sentenced to death by lethal injection. Now, Arkansas death penalty history is interesting. There was a major moratorium that was put in place in 1967. Then the Supreme Court case, uh, Georgia versus Furman, said that the death penalty was inhuman, so it becomes, like, nationally stopped. Then in 1973, Arkansas is like, nah, we like the death penalty now. The Supreme Court reinstates it in 1976 with Georgia versus Greg. I think it's Greg versus Georgia. Arkansas allows for executions, but they don't do them anymore. So at the point where this is happening, there have been no executions in the state of Arkansas since the 1960s. Wow. And at the time, there were no laws in place that required you to go through a set amount of appeals before a death sentence is like handled out. That's why it takes so long on death row now, because now there are laws that say like, hey, you have to be able to appeal a certain amount of times. Hmm. Ronald is not okay with this. I don't (laughs) want an appeal. In his first statement to those who oppose the death penalty and my particular case Anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. Then he issues another statement saying, I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. So he's like, please stop trying to save my life, y'all. Oh, my God. So on death row, people keep trying to kill him. Not because of his crimes, but because the other death row inmates are mad that he isn't using his appeals because of the precedent system in U.S. justice. (laughs) Are you serious? Well, but think about this. In the U.S. justice system, if something happens one time in court, we call that the precedent. Right. And they're worried that allowing someone to be killed before the appeals are done sets a precedent that would negatively impact them. In fact, one of his fellow... Uh, death row inmate people files a lawsuit against him. Oh, wow. Because he won't take out his appeals. So they give him a second trial. He doesn't want a defense. He just wants to plead guilty and die. In that trial, the prosecutor fought for one piece of evidence. The letter that he had written to Sheila, which was found in a box of things that Becky had in the house. That letter that said that he would see Sheila in hell. Right. 
Prosecutor Bynum stood in court and read the entire letter out loud. How he blamed this child he raped on the destruction of his life. How he had been in love with her. How dare you? Like it was, it was gory and it was humiliating. And he leaped over the table and he punched Bynum in the face. Oh. Sending the entire court into chaos. The officers all jumped on him. They chain him up and drag him out of the courtroom as he is screaming obscenities at the prosecutor. What, sir? You wrote it. I mean, I'm just reading what you wrote here. He didn't expect it would be there like (laughs) eight years later. Why would you like she kept it? Yeah. And then Becky kept it because it was Sheila's stuff. They bring him back in for sentencing. He is there was almost no deliberation. Sentenced to death by lethal injection 16 times, Mm. one for each victim. He thanks the judge, says, I deserve to die. They went to appeal again, but he wasn't having it. Ronald really didn't want any more of his private, painful memories paraded around the court. May 31st, 1990, Arkansas Governor William Bill Clinton signs Ronald's execution warrant. Future president. Hmm. Ronald refuses all visitors doesn't want to speak to any reporters. He wants no legal counsel, no priests. June 25th, 1990, he is executed by lethal injection. Final words saying justice delayed, finally be done, is justifiable homicide. It took 17 long minutes for him to die. And the state held on to his body. Boy, none of his surviving relatives claimed it. They wanted nothing to do with him, and he was buried in a pauper's field in Varner, Arkansas, in an unmarked grave. And thus ends the life of Arkansas's most prolific mass murderer. That was... That was not fun to listen to. No, it was awful. It was awful to write, too. A couple times that I was writing this, I, like, teared up. Oh, my God. How dare you? I can't imagine killing a child. No. By hand. Like he made, like most of those murders he did were all like personal. He's like he just mm-hmm. up close and personal. It's. Ugh. I mean, and and also peep the overkill on both uh, Becky and Sheila. Mm-hmm. Yes. He he emptied full clips into them after they were already dead. Just. His his weird, and the thing about this is like we never got a diagnosis from him from it because he wouldn't talk to any of the psychiatrists. Right. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, I hope you have something that's a little more positive to talk about today. Like, how am I supposed to follow that <laughs> with something happy? <clears throat> that's why you're here. As long as you don't tell me that the Mothman kills a dog, we're good. Not today. Good. No, no cryptid. I still, I listen, I know that was like the second episode, (laughs) but I'm still mad about it. That was like the second episode. You dashed my hopes, sir. (laughs) I was like, was? And you were like, well, you know, it happened a long time ago. Dogs don't live that long. (laughs) Especially this one, because the Mothman ate it. 
It was the fourth episode. <laughs> Our first month, the fourth episode, you made me feel sad about a dog that got eaten by the mothman. Oh, God. Okay. Ooh, well, today... <laughs> Today, I'm not talking about Mothman. I'm not talking about Ass Eater. Um, today, I'm talking about things in your life that just drain the life force from you. Um, and like, as an introvert, for me, that's basically like every social interaction I come in contact with. Or are are you talking about like emotional vampires? Look, Brandon, I'm trying to lead up to this. You can't just be jumping okay. the gun. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just find that so interesting. Yes, I am talking about <clears throat> emotional vampires slash psychic vampires slash energy vampires. Did you? Oh, wait. We, we I showed you that thing. That's why um, I wanted to talk about it. Like, it's like it popped in my head. and I was like, ooh. This. I showed you that clip from Fred Club. Yeah. 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 But, okay, continue. I'm sorry. Yes, you are an introvert. <laughs> Somehow you so connected yourself to me, fam. <laughs> I tend to do that to a lot of extroverts, barely. Um, but yeah, like even like after a few hours of being like in contact with more like five people, I'm just like, okay, I need to go take a nap now. <sighs> but not just things, though. Like you have to, you have. Like, have you ever had, like, a person in your life that just, like, that's, like, hard to handle? Like, it's, like, too much to handle? You know what I mean? You're just too I feel much. like I am that person for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot. I, I, I talk a lot. I'm very loud. I mean, but, yeah, but you're not, like, like, it's, like, a person that, like, exhausts the hell out of you. Like, just listening to them talk. And... I mean, I don't, you don't exhaust me when you're talking, so it's it's not. Well, I'll say this. As a 34-year-old person, I'm way better at, like, like my best friend loves uh, just, we call it just, like, tandem hanging out, mm -hmm. where we are just in the same room on our own devices, just chilling. And that's, like, how me and that, like, that's how my best friend, also super duper, well, you met, you met them. Yeah. Um, introvert. Um, and then when my mom was ill, we used to do that too. We would just like sit and have the TV on and we would be like looking at shit on our phones. And my mom would just be like, look at this suit. And I'd be like, mom, it's orange. You can't buy an orange suit. She's like, why? I'm like, cause it's orange. Like, <laughs> so I have learned over the years, um, how to be a little bit tamer sometimes around introverts. Right. But like my Especially now that I'm no longer teaching, my final form is very extra. <laughs> but um, I can't say that I've really, I mean, I've dealt with people who I feel like take from you. Yes. Because yeah. they're like always in drama. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening in my life. I can't, I, I wish I could tell you this absolutely bat, like bat shit story. With this, with the, uh, this, he's doing this stuff and her boyfriend's doing this and we're next door neighbors and then like mm -mm. it just never ended and I was like listen if you ever talk to this lady again you suck obviously she's awful and I'm like getting secondhand exhaustion from the situation you're explaining to me <laughs> I'm extra tired now this, see, like I'm tired and none of this happened to me 
Why God. do you keep hanging out with this with these people? Yeah, I'm I'm also uh, real good at like cutting people out. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if I feel like you, I don't want to say don't serve me, but if I feel like you aren't doing anything good, I'm I'm done. If you serve no use in my life, you are getting out of here. <clears throat> if you serve no use in nobody's life. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! But no, I know people like that. I, I work with a, a couple actually that are like that, and. Oh no! It's like for me. Okay, so like, like I said, I'm an introvert. Obviously, you guys can tell. Um, but like for me, I I'm just like, let me not run into this person today. Let me not run into this person today because they're going to try to talk my damn ear off, and I'm just going to be extra exhausted from listening to your stupid story about what's going on in your life. No offense. I'm just saying. Oh God! And then yeah, and then it's, it's people with drama too. Like people with that like to share a lot of their drama that's going on. I also have a lot of I've I've one of those. <laughs> I work with too. So look, I work third shift, and I don't have yeah. I don't have time to be exhausted at night. Okay, and y'all are tiring me the hell out. It's it's terrible. But anyway. Like I said, like Brittany said, we are talking about psychic vampires, energy vampires, emotional vampires. And just like vampires of myth, these people will feed off of you. Um, not your blood, though. They take your life force or just basically your energy and leave but you. You know what? Those drama people, they kind of do, too. They're they're feeding off of oh, yeah, the yeah. attention that you're giving them. I mean, the drama people, they are types. It's not even supernatural, but it's still awful. Yeah, they, I mean, they are types of psychic vampires. <sighs> so, well, let's start out with what a psychic vampire is. Um, like I mentioned, a psychic vampire is a person who drains others, uh, life force, in some cases, uh, emotionally, they drain them as well. And when I say life force, I guess I kind of mean like your aura or just like just your en- energy. And emotional, of course, is just mm-hmm. like 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 I like we both mentioned before, like that coworker that it's just like they bring that drama in, and it's just like you're like sucked into their story, and you're just like, oh wow. Oh, that's just crazy. You don't say. Oh, and they just keep going and going and going and going. It's just like, oh. oh. Well, that's the worst one for me. Because <laughs> it's like. I don't care. I don't care. Why are you talking to me? I don't care. I've start, I've started to give off that energy. Like that's like a defense against psychic vamp or these kind of people. It's like I give off that kind of energy. Like I, I I hear you're trying to talk to me, but I do not give a fuck. I'm trying to work. This is what I'm doing. This is what you should be doing. Go away. Leave me alone. Let me do my job, please. <laughs> and this is just me. This has turned into me just uh, venting about work <laughs> my coworkers. Oh goodness! I just I don't I don't I don't I don't I just don't care about what's happening in your life. Yeah, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, it's so rude. <laughs> I just don't. I mean, sometimes you gotta be rude though. <sighs> um, but yeah. So this that's kind of what emotional vampires are like. They're just they just feed off of they they just want your attention. They want your attention, and when they get your attention, they latch on. They're freaking parasites, and they suck your energy out of you. You bring it down to their level. They're petty bullshit. It's 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 nourishment to these people. Okay. So. And like and just listening to them, this leaves you like run down, tired, and you, like sometimes, and sometimes like with psychic vampires, you do get that like you end up feeling, uh, I guess, a little depressed too, just from like the the run downness. You're just like, ugh, god. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. So. A, a lot of like okay, I won't say a lot, but some emotional vampires they actually don't know that they're doing this. Ooh. Yeah, they don't know that they're like with their stories and like with whatever they're, they're doing. It's like draining people, and then after like it's funny because you feel run down after your conversation with them, but then after they're done talking to you, they're just like, la, 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 la. I feel so much better. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. And <laughs> that's their famous last words. And then they go and skip along because they're full of your energy. And <laughs> it's, 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 it's a personal problem. And it's, it's like, <laughs> I, I feel very personally attacked by the story I picked today. <laughs> by myself. Right. I'm attacking myself. And, like, I'm pretty sure, like, with the not knowing things, I'm pretty sure, like, I drain, like, Tara's energy or I drain, like, your energy, Brittany, sometimes with just the stories and just, like, the drama with the Mothman. And, like, I'm pretty sure I drained you. <laughs> No. I I took pleasure of <laughs> tearing no, that. No, 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 no. We we spend time annoying each other. This, um, this is true. I think occasionally you annoy me, but oh, that's yeah. not the same as being drained. And I feel like everybody annoys everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah, everybody annoys everybody. Like at some point, you're not going to be like always happy with your friends. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's just a different thing. Like, cause I also feel like the emotional vampire people are never people you're very close to. This is true. Like I said, their their coworkers or just associates or you know somebody a, co- uh, a classmate that just happens to sit next to you or something like that, and they just want to talk about what's going on. <laughs> so. Did you know that the term psychic vampire was coined by the founder of the Church of Satan? No. Uh, his name is uh, his name was Anton Lavey. Le- Lavey. Um, Lavey. I think it might be Lavey. Lavey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he claims that yeah he claims that ter- uh, coined a term. Uh, his definition of a psychic vampire was a spiritually or emotionally weak person who drains vital energy from other people. And that's that definition really hasn't changed that much over the years. 
Um, and this was back in the 60s when he, you know, he founded the Church of Satan. And it's just, it stayed the same, and it's still true to this day. That's exactly what it is. Um, so did you also know that there are some people out there that refer, that actually refer to themselves as psychic vampires? Oh, Lord. And... <laughs> And they say that they, you know, they actually feed off of um, others' life force or their, you know, emotional connection to them. And like, there's a, there's a, like a whole subculture surrounding it. But they don't just feed on emotions. Um, like they, that's not all a, a psychic vampire can do, I guess. Um, they. They're apparently in in this subculture. They're believed to have some type of psychic power or healing power. Um, so there's there's this woman. Her name is Michelle uh, Belanger. Belanger. I'm going with that. And okay. and she wait Bellinger. Bellinger. Yeah, Michelle Ballinger. She's a wonderful psychic. There you know her. There you go. Literally, she said her name on the clip that I showed you. I don't remember. Br- Brittany, Brittany, I'm terrible with names, okay? I'm terrible with names. I don't remember anybody's name. Yeah, yeah, because that was the first. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah, she's awesome. Actually, I like when I went to I went to her website and I was like, oh, I know who she is. Like, yeah, she does loads of stuff, occult stuff. One of my favorite like ghost shows I saw, they brought her in, and like the the family, the people were like, yeah, yeah. So we found these like bags on the property, and she's like, did you open them? And they were like, yeah. And she was just like, oh, why? <laughs> like, if you find weird things around your property, bags, bottles, has stuff in it, you don't know what it is. Don't open it or move it. Yes. They're generally either hex bags or protection bags. But she was just like physically annoyed and I saw it in the show. Yeah. Uh, um, she, I think it, it was uh, Paranormal State is what she was on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she's been on a bunch of stuff. Um, she has a ton of books. So she has like two dozen mm-hmm. books that she's written. And she also does online classes to help people with their psychic stuff she does like i like if you think you might have the ability she'll help you out look i've been i've been looking at her website (laughs) looking into this and i was like hmm Hmm. apparently she did music at some point i was like what she does podcasts talk about a life well lived yeah she definitely she has podcasts she does interviews like oh god I would like to meet her one day. Same. Um, but she's also a self-proclaimed psychic vampire. Really? Yes. And a lot of I her I did not bo- know that. Yeah, a lot of her books are actually about uh, vampirism or psychic vampires or just psychic things. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, okay, I need more information about that. Like, go to her website. You gotta check it out. Uh, it's, it's Michelle Bellinger.com. Yeah, Michelle Bellinger.com. It's, it's her website. Check it out. Um, Jesus, 30 books. <laughs> but anyway, her, her hope her hope for the psychic um, vampire community is to get rid of the negative stigma that psychic vampires have by using their psychic powers to heal 
people in- oh. instead of hurting people, which is which would be awesome. Like, think about it. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people who claim to be psychic vampires. They're not bad people, um, and some of them are partnered. They, you know, they, they're in relationships, and their partners allow them to, you know, feed off of them, feed off of that energy that they give off. Which, I mean, okay, okay, yeah, that's what I said. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what you make about that. Oh goodness! So there are ways that you can figure out if a person is a psychic vampire or energy vampire or emotional vampire that's around you, and like there there are traits that they have, and I'm going to go over some of them. So, the first one I read is that they don't take accountability for their actions. Um, it says that emotional vampires are often charismatic. Uh, they might they may be able to like get out of trouble real fast, you know, and use their charm. They're like their 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 charisma is like plus ten. So. Um, and they're able to like redirect whatever issue that they have onto like some other some other person, and it's like it's like um it's like if they're being blamed for something, they're just like no, I just I just sat here and I don't I don't know why like this person is so mad at me. And I don't know, like, I don't know what I did, but obviously I did something to upset him. And this is, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I'm just I'm, like, this is, I was just here and this is what happened. So, yeah, that's the thing. I've, <laughs> I've, 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 I've seen that happen before. Um, and like we both mentioned that, energies slash psychic vampires are always in some type of drama. They always have some type of drama going on in their life. Mm-hmm. And they're always like, it's, it's just, they, they feed off the drama and then they go to like spread the drama or the gossip just to get more energy back. It, it's, it's like, um, like, why is everybody always mad at me? Like, I don't do anything. Like, I don't talk shit about anybody. I'm just, all this drama is around me, and I don't know how to handle it. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um. Goodness. Another one is that they're always trying to outdo you or they're trying to one up you they're always trying to they're always trying to like like say i just you know i just i don't know i'm trying to i'm trying to think of something cool like i just beat this this hard ass level i've been playing on in pokemon and blah 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 (laughs) and (laughs) and and they come up and they're like 
Oh my god, it took you that long to get to beat that? Like, I beat that the first day it came out. I can't believe it took you so long. Or like, or you're like, oh, look at these new shoes I got. Like, they're so cool. Like, right? I can run extra fast. Watch me run. And, and they're just like, you think that's fast? Well, watch me. I can run around the block five times in under a minute. <laughs> it's just that. That kind of mentality is is they're just trying to, like, always outdo you. And another thing is that whenever... Whenever you have something going on in your life, like you have some type of problem going on in your life, they mm-hmm. tr- they try to bring up their own issue that's going on in their life. Say you had, I don't know, a, a knock on wood, um, a pet died, <laughs> and in your family or in your, in your life, and they're just like. Oh yeah, that reminds me of this time when I dropped my taco on the ground and I was so devastated. Or something <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Something just something's just that they just they just try to make themselves the center of attention after that. Oh my god, you're t- you're is, was it a walking taco? Yes, it was a walking taco and I just taken one bite out of it and it fell out all over the concrete i can't believe it oh my god <laughs> i'm sorry i'm, I'm I, i'm loving this <clears throat> i'm i'm loving just the um it's just the, the, the traumatization Move forward, sir. Move forward. <laughs> oh goodness and um i guess another thing is that they act like a martyr so like they try to place them, like they try to place everybody's problems onto themselves, or like, or their problems onto other people, and they take no responsibility for um, what a person has done to help them out, and they're just like, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to do this one, um. Like this person's being like so so mean to me. They're just like they're, I don't I don't get what they're doing. Like I try I try as hard as I can to to you know to please to to do my job right. But this guy, it's just like whatever I do is just not enough. You know what I mean? It, yeah, something like that. And let's see, they use guilt trips a lot and they use ultimatums a lot this sounds just like a really bad person it is it is it's a toxic fucking person um they are very codependent um they god this is a toxic boyfriend god they they criticize or bully you that's what i'm saying (laughs) you are literally describing a lot of people's exes they intimidate a lot of people. Oh, goodness. They already try to intimidate people. Yeah, like, so far, I'm like, this hits all the things. <laughs> like, this is like when you go to WebMD, WebMD and you type in your... <laughs> your symptoms. Your symptoms, and it's like, this person could be a narcissist, could be a jerk, could be a psychic vampire. Who knows? Oh, my God. 
just avoid people who treat you like this at all anyway. They might be a psychic vampire or they more could just be a big tool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, mm. So, yeah, dealing with, like, a person like this, it can definitely lead to, I guess, like, str- a lot of stress, um, a lot of anxiety, depression, like, even heart disease. Like, it, it, it can, like, all, all these things can just, like, fuck you up inside. And, like, they're, like, what they call it is, like, a psychic attack. Mm. And, like, they're, they're... There are ways to protect about it, like against it. I guess there there are ways to know if you're under a psychic attack, and it's like if you're feeling. Well, psychics teach people about shielding. Yeah, 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 definitely. Going into certain spaces, which is just healthy in general. Mm-hmm. Also, very healthy to maintain a feeling of I don't care about your life. <laughs> Leave me alone. Just keep that mentality. You're just right there in the front. Just like I like this is this like that's like a like I said earlier, that's the aura I give off. I swear I give that off to people I don't want to talk to. And good. Or You're a gentle soul. I, I feel like I'm like I'm, sometimes I'm too nice and the, the, the <laughs> and then it's just like it happens and I You're don't definitely too nice. Yeah. Um you definitely like showed up here to help me move into this place at like seven in the morning after you'd already worked all night. That's very nice. <laughs> More nice than most humans. Oh my god! Don't tell people that. Don't tell people I'm nice. I mean, <laughs> I'm the meanest mother you ever met. There you go. What's that? Uh, from Cool Runnings. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't. I don't remember. I feel pride. I feel power. Oh my god! <laughs> me, motherfucker, who don't take nothing from nobody. There you go. That's exa- Say it every day in the morning, Brian. That's exactly who I am. <laughs> um, but I, you say I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a symptom of a psychic attack is like you're feeling like lightheaded, or you're feeling dizzy, like you're 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 losing energy, like your muscles feel weak. Your your head's just like you're just like a fog going on in your mind, and you're just like I don't get it. You, like you got a headache, you're just extra, just like tired. You can't sleep right. That just this just really just sounds like my life. God. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're just extra irritable. You're always in a depressed mood, and like sometimes you just sometimes you actually are physically like ill. You're like sick because you're run down from the lack of sleep, or you're just good. Ugh. Lack of energy. Mm-hmm. So, how does one protect against a psychic attack? Well, you could learn about energy shields, like Brittany said. Uh, always, always good thing to do. Um, and that way, you can like. Uh, I mean, in that sense. I mean, you can like get like a an amulet or something that is, you know, special to you that that holds some type of, you know, meaning and you know some type of light in your life that you know repels the the dark energy of someone trying to take your energy. Um, you can also invoke the white light. 
which is like you just visualize like yourself inside of a a a bright bubble of light and it's it's just surrounding you and it's just like you you are protected in this bubble and everybody else outside the bubble that you don't want in stays outside all all things nice and pleasant are allowed inside people with your drama are not allowed inside of your bubble um and just be just be aware of who in your life acts like this and who who do you feel tired <laughs> by talking just like talking to just being around um like i said when i get to work i try to just like go in and get my get my stuff ready and be on my way to you know what i have to do and avoid these people that i i don't like talking to sometimes <sighs> <laughs> oh. um, you can also um, so there are other ways you always establish boundaries with people like you don't always have to avoid them just you know set boundaries so it's like hey like this for me I guess something that would work is like hey I understand like this is upsetting you in your life but this is work and I'm here to do my job so how about we just talk about, you know, work stuff. And if work stuff ends up being too, I guess, drama filled for you, you can always like, hey, I just don't want to talk about that right now. Um, can we, I don't know, talk about something else. How's, you know, it's cold outside. It's getting cold. Did you know that? Like winter, winter is here and it's here to stay. <laughs> Like something like that, <clears throat> and another thing you can do is just like accept that you can't really fix a psychic or energy vampire. That's I guess being I'm not I'm not not all of them. I'm just saying the ones that are bad. You can't really fix them, <clears throat> but you can like change your mindset around. How you act towards them, or how you involve yourself with them, and like, like I said, like you said, like I said earlier, just that aura, that aura, put that aura in your mind that I don't give a fuck about what you're saying to me, <clears throat> and I will never give a fuck about it anymore. Like you cannot, you don't have that power over me anymore, um, and even if like you, you give like. Don't give them. Don't even give them an inch. Don't give them an inch to like get in like some drama filled stuff. Don't do that. It's just, and this is like me pep talking myself. Brian, don't do this. <laughs> don't let them get into your head. Oh goodness gracious. But yeah, um, a lot like a lot of. I say a lot of psychic vampires stuff. It's it's a lot. A lot of it's like myth, myth. Um, there you go, mythological. Um, but a lot of it is just like a shitty person in your life that drains the fuck out of you. Um, and that's just like an emotional thing. Did you know? So I was on Wikipedia, right? 
Um, and did you know that there there's a such thing as a sexual vampire? <laughs> I don't want to know about it. And it's kind of just like a succubus or like an incubus. Like they, they I mean, it makes they, sense. They they just feed off of your sexual energy. <laughs> oh, I read that and I was like, oh, I mean, okay, that's a thing I just learned. But yeah, um, that's what I got today for psychic vampires. Well, that was something. Mm-hmm. That's our first Christmas episode. Oh my God, mine wasn't even Christmas related this time. Nope, but mine is, and so will the next couple ones. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably make the last one I do Christmas related. Maybe, maybe the next. I don't. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Krampus. He might be coming. Who knows? That's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, yeah. That's always a good one to tell. Especially the kids. Tell the kids that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have like total things over there. Where people run around and frighten the children. So it's all solid. Yeah. But yeah. Thank you all for listening so much. And f- joining us on the Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash when killers get caught. Getting a cute little little small inkling of people who we, follow us and listen to conspiracy crypt every week we are getting a little community there i like i, like, I would, our little discord has like 29 people Ooh. yeah i i just want to thank everybody for listening like you guys are awesome thank you for listening yeah i recently looked up like our official numbers and it's like 150,000 people that's absolutely incredible it's it's amazing it really is Oh. So thank you so much for listening, and I guess we'll see you next week. Yep. Goodbye. Bye.